0: Alright everybody, Uh, it is 8am and I'm gonna get get started. Thanks for being here. I was telling my wife, Allison, who's over here uh, with us this morning that the five people who know the word impassibility are gonna be in the class and that's it. So uh, I'm glad y'all are here uh, with us at 8am in the morning talking about uh, divine impassibility. Uh, We're gonna talk about uh, why God does not and cannot suffer and why that is good news. Uh, but before we dive in, uh, I just want to pray for us, and then we'll we'll jump into the presentation. Heavenly Father, we ask for your joy, the joy that you've had from all eternity. We know that we can have that joy by the Holy Spirit's power. We don't ask for naive optimism. We don't ask for a Pollyannish view of the world. We ask for your joy in the midst of great suffering. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, before uh, we dive into the nitty-gritty of what we're talking about today, I want to share two stories of suffering, one personal that you probably don't know and one global that you do know. Before I talk about God and suffering, I want to share with you that my wife and I went through a very difficult time of suffering in February of 2021. Uh, We got pregnant during COVID, like I think actually a lot of people got pregnant during COVID. Uh, And so our baby was due in February of 2021. And on the day she was born, she was born with a rare genetic skin condition. One in 200,000 babies are born with this condition. It's called ichthyosis. And so when, when, uh, sh- uh, when she was born, they immediately took her to the NICU. Uh, no, none of the doctors in the NICU had ever seen uh, what she had. Um, and so for 12 days, they had to slowly um, apply Vaseline to her skin for this kind of shell to, to come off of her body. And as you can imagine, for brand new parents, this is our first baby. Uh, that was not what we were expecting Um, I remember going into uh, her room with her little isolate and seeing her uh, in this in this kind of container to keep her skin moist. Um, And one of the nurses saying, you know, she's not she's not feeding well right now. And and if any of you are parents, you know, the the fear and terror of that moment. And it was one of the darkest times in our life. And it was so. Um, It was, for me, just kind of being plunged right into suffering. So personal um, and so tragic. Now, fortunately, we were able to leave after 12 days and she's doing great now and is healthy, but she'll live with that skin condition for the rest of her life. And we don't know how much she will suffer because of, of her condition. Uh, This global story, I don't have to tell any of you, you know, uh, you know this, Um, this virus COVID spread into a global pandemic, killing countless people, infecting so many more, shutting down countries and economies. So I want you to know before we talk about God and suffering, I have suffered, this world has suffered, I am not clueless to the experience of suffering, okay, Uh, this question is not abstract for me. It's not an interesting theological question to me. It's so much more. Uh, this, this question mattered to me when I was in the NICU with my daughter who wasn't, who wasn't eating well. Okay. All right. Um, when we suffer, I think we tend to ask, is there any good news? Right. In the midst of this suffering, is there any gospel to preach or to hear Um, And I think one answer that was very prominent in the 20th century is that the good news when we're suffering is that God can and does suffer. Um, So this, uh, I'm just going to be a historical nerd for a second, but this is actually where we get some of our words like patient, the Latin root pati, P-A-T-I, is where we get, you know, a hospital patient is one who suffers. Um, The Latin word passio means to suffer. This is why we refer to Christ's suffering and crucifixion as his passion. Okay, so so according to some theologians in the 19th and 20th centuries, the good news is that God is passable. He can and does suffer with us. God suffers in himself in his eternal divine nature. in, uh, in my undergraduate program, this was something that we were told to, to say in a hospital room with someone uh, who was suffering. God knows what it's like to suffer. This should be encouraging. One of the key words that these theologians would use is, is solidarity. God experiences solidarity with us. God is with you in your suffering because he suffers too. Okay, so this, this was one response very recent in church history in the 19th and 20th centuries. And I think the, the primary kind of existential motivation behind this was great examples of suffering in the 20th century. Um, so after the Holocaust, theologians were wondering, is there any good news? And their good news was God hangs on the gallows with the Jews. God suffers with the Jews in the gas chambers. Liberation theologians from Latin America, black theologians from the U.S. said, this is the good news. In light of all the racism that is institutionalized in Jim Crow laws and slavery due to oppression from authoritarian governments in Latin America, the good news is that God suffers with the oppressed and the marginalized. God is hanging from the lynching tree, right? So this, this is motivated by the fact that The definition of love, according to these theologians, is to suffer with one who is suffering. And I think that's very intuitive for a lot of us. We believe that compassion means to suffer with. And if God is a compassionate God, surely he must suffer with us. So this doctrine of a God who suffers begins with the immense suffering of people, whether it's women at the hands of sexism or the poor at the hands of the rich, black Americans at the hands of white Americans, Jews at the hands of the Nazis, and then moves to the the love of God. God loves those who, who are suffering, and because he loves those who are suffering, he suffers with them. He comes alongside them and mourns with those who mourn. So any kind of theology that says that God does not suffer means he doesn't truly love us. That's what these theologians would say. In fact, some would go as far as to say he is unloving. He is static. He is apathetic, even a monster. Okay. So I bet for some of you, you might agree at this point, that's, that, that sounds right to me. And I think for a lot of Christians, um, this seems very intuitive. And I think that if there's any case for a God who is passable, this is it. This is the best case on offer. So why should we question passability? What's not to love about a passable God? Well, the fact is that the vast majority of theologians before the 19th century believed that God was both impassible and loving. They saw no contradiction between those two traits. And it's undeniable that these theologians and Christians prior to the 19th century knew about and experienced suffering. This wasn't a foreign concept to them. Okay, So if suffering isn't new, why should we change a doctrine that was consistently taught before the past couple of centuries. I think the burden of proof is on the theologians to to show what new situation has, has caused the shift in the doctrine. Okay? So, I want to talk for a little bit about this consistency across the centuries about divine impassibility. And here's some evidence. Let's start with the second century church father, Irenaeus. Irenaeus studied under Polycarp who studied under the beloved apostle John. So Irenaeus is three men removed from Jesus. He is not far ahead in church history. And these are two quotes from him. The father of all is at a vast distance from those affections and passions which operate among men. But in the same breath, what does he say? The love of God being rich and ungrudging confers upon the suppliant more than he can ask from it. Okay, so Irenaeus believes that God is at a vast distance from affections and passions and yet rich in love. He sees no contradiction between love and impassibility. Let's keep going. Athenagoras says God is uncreated and impassible and indivisible. Origen from the second and third century says God must be believed to be entirely without passion, destitute of emotions. Novation says we are not to understand these emotions, to be asserted of God in the sense in which they are human vices. And my personal favorite church father in the fourth and fifth centuries, Augustine, this North African theologian says in the beginning of the confessions, one of my favorite paragraphs of all time, in a prayer to God, you love without frenzy. You are jealous yet secure. You regret without sadness. You grow angry yet remain tranquil. Now we can Hardly imagine as humans what it would be like to have jealousy and yet be totally secure. We can't imagine regret without sadness about our own actions. It's hard to even fathom anger that is tranquil. But Augustine says these things are all true of God. And impassibility is not just the opinion of these few theologians. There are actually whole councils called in the fourth century and fifth century to talk about the suffering of God. The Council of Rome in 382 condemns theopassionism, which says that God is passable. The Council of Chalcedon says in its canons in 451, the word of God is impassable. Okay, so this is not just individual theologians, whole councils come together to talk about this, and they reaffirm over and over, God is impassable. And it's not just early Christians that believe this, it's not just Catholics, in case you're worried, it's also the Eastern Orthodox. This is John of Damascus. In his exposition of the Orthodox faith, the properties of divine nature. And he just lists them. Uncreated, without beginning, immortal, infinite, eternal, immaterial, good, creative, just, enlightening, immutable, and say it with me, passionless. Passionless. So this is not just the Catholics. It's also the Orthodox. And guess what? Even when we get to the 16th century and the 17th century, we have Protestants saying, That God is impassable. So, if the Catholics believe it, and the Eastern Orthodox believe it, and the Anglicans and the Reformed believe it, what has changed? What makes us believe that God is passable? Now, I think a lot is at stake in this, and I wanted to to answer this head on. What's in it for us? Is is this anything more than an abstract question? question for church historians i believe so okay because god promises an end to suffering in the book of revelation he will wipe away every tear from our eyes and my question is on what basis can god make that promise because if god suffers in his divine nature how can he promise to end our suffering if god cannot protect or save himself from suffering why could god save or protect me from suffering, my daughter from suffering, this whole world from suffering. Can God give what God does not have? I think those are the stakes. But alternatively, if it's the case that God can only give what God has, if God has infinite, invincible joy, if God does, in fact, give us his joy in heaven, then suffering and pain can come to an end, okay? So here's how I'm going to work from here. I don't want to just say, all those people believed it, so we should too. I actually want to argue this out. So here's the plan. We're going to talk about God, a doctrine of God in himself. We're going to talk about God's dealings with Israel, specifically in the Old Testament. We're going to talk about Jesus and then we're going to bring it all to heaven. Okay. So let's talk about our doctrine of God. I think if you start off on the wrong foot here, a lot of conversations about divine impassibility or passibility get really um, out of control. So I want to talk about God's attributes. And I think if we if we can agree on these things, uh, a lot can be settled in advance. So first, we believe that God is the uncreated creator of all things. Right. In the Apostles Creed, it says God the Father is the maker of heaven and earth. In the Nicene Creed, it says that God created all things visible and invisible. So he is the ultimate source of time and space, the whole cosmos, which means there is an essential distinction between God and everything else. On the uncreated side, we've got God, and on the created side, we've got angels and ants and aardvarks and humans and Adam and Eve. We're all on this side. We share more in common with each other in our nature than we do with God, which means that God is almighty. God is all-powerful because all things at all times, because they are created by him, are dependent upon him. God is more powerful than all created things and nothing could have any power without God being the omnipotent source of that power. Third, I think that means that God is eternal. If God himself is the creator of time, he is not constrained by time. He is beyond time. Time may pass from past to present to future, but God stays the same, which leads us to our fourth attribute that God is immutable. God doesn't change or alter his character, his promises, his nature. God can't be anything other than who he, he is. It's in his very name. I am who I am. Okay, so creatures become, we change, God just is. And I don't think this is just speculative about who God is. I think it comes and is rooted in scripture. Malachi 3.6 says, I, the Lord, do not change. Hebrews 13, 8 says Jesus is the same today, yesterday, and forever. Isaiah 40 says the word of our God will stand forever. James 1 says the father of lights has no variation or shadow due to change. So for me, I think just in the beginning, if we talk about God's attributes, it's hard for me to comprehend how God could be immutable and almighty and the uncreated creator of all things who sustains things in the palm of his hands and suffer. But let's say you're not there yet. I think it's really helpful to actually describe and define what impassibility is. Okay. And I think the best definition I heard uh, or read in one book is, is uh, from Matthew Barrett's book, none greater. Okay. This is his definition of impassibility. Our God is, by nature, incapable of suffering. He is not susceptible to emotional fluctuation. We worship a God who is in complete control of who He is and what He does. Never is there any action by God that is out of line with His unchanging character. Instead of being divided by different emotional states or overcome by sudden unexpected moods, moods that reveal just how vulnerable and dependent He is on what we do, the God of the Bible is a God who never becomes anxious, lonely, or compulsive. Now, in preparation for this, I was reading a, bl- a blog by a guy named Richard Beck and I didn't realize he was gonna be in the room when, when I was teaching this. But he says that impassibility has a branding problem, okay? This is a great rebranding for impassibility. And so let me, let me give it my own, my own shot here. I think an impassible God is not stoic or static. Let's get to this slide. One one more. God's love is so fundamental to his nature that it is invincible to anything that happens in our world. What impassibility means is that God's life is so abundant that mere humans cannot take away from its fullness. Impassibility means that God's joy is so complete that nothing that happens outside of God can subtract from his joy. I think in the same way that we worship God because he is love, in the same way that we worship God because he is wise, in the same way that we worship God because he is just, I think we should worship God because he is impassable. His love and his life and his joy are so complete, so full, they are inexorable, infinite, and invincible. Okay. Now let's skip uh, to this slide um, Let's talk about God's dealings with Israel. If you can skip down to that, Allison. Now, let's say that we kind of have a a doctrine of God about God's relationship to creation, that he is almighty, that he he is eternal, he is immutable. Well, what about all the passages, Mitch, where God shows wrath and love and joy and delight? There's a lot more than these, but these are just some representative examples? What about God's supposed regret when he makes humankind in the story of Noah? What about God's wrath about the golden calf? What about God's specific and very particular love and favor for King David and King Solomon? What about God's relenting from the promised punishment of the Ninevites? Haven't you read the Old Testament, Mitch? You're just bringing this stoic philosophy, these Greek philosophers, and you're just painting over the Bible with them. So if God regrets, if God burns in anger, doesn't that mean God has emotions? Well, not necessarily. Because scripture also says that God has hands and feet and eyes and ears. And in your freshman Bible class, if you had a Bible major, if you were a Bible major, you found out very quickly about this term called called anthropomorphism. That God, through scripture, uses human language to communicate a truth about God. So when the Bible says something like God has eyes or God has ears, we're not saying that God has retinas or God has eardrums. But they are communicating something true about God. God has eyes because he is all seeing. He sees us and he loves us. God has ears because he hears our prayers Because God is loving and listens to us. So these human forms are applied to God as an anthropomorphic way of speaking about God. John Calvin puts it this way Through scripture, God lisps to us like a parent or nurse would, using baby talk to speak to a child. So, likewise, when we come to human emotions, we can call it anthropopathism. Anthropos means human, and pathos means passions. So these. This language in scripture uses human emotions to tell us something true about God. How does an impassible God tell us about his view of sin? Well, he is angry about our sin. How does an impassible God reveal to us the nature of his grace for us? Well, he relents from calamity. Augustine in the City of God says this in book, book 9, chapter 7. The word anger signifies God's vengeance in effect not that God himself is affected by any storm of emotion. One of the most famous passages for this is 1 Samuel chapter 15. We're told in the same chapter that God regrets that he makes Saul king. Y'all remember that passage? And in the same chapter, it says the glory of Israel does not lie, does not change his mind. This is not a contradiction. God didn't change. Saul changed. And God's Unchanging justice regards Saul's change as sinful. So this is an anthropopathic way of talking about God. Now, I don't love using quotes around these because it, it sounds like I'm saying it's not true. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying it's true in a different sense. It's true analogically. And I think, I think this is so important. This, this term, analogy, helps us read scripture better because it always helps us see what God is and what God isn't. So when we read something like God is our father, we know that that's true in one sense and not true in another sense. God is not biologically our father, but God has truly adopted us as sons. We're not saying that sonship is is not real. So when we read something like God shows mercy, we don't believe that God changes from being unmerciful to merciful, St. Anselm says it this way, when you look upon us in our misery, it is we who feel the effect of your mercy, but you do not experience the feeling. So I think whenever we read the Bible and we read about God's so-called emotions, we can always go back to analogy. There is something like here and something unlike here. All right. Then So I'm just going to, that's just going to be all I'm going to say about the Old Testament. Now I want to talk about Jesus. Okay. Um, I remember I was talking to a friend about this, this topic a couple of weeks ago. He said, Mitch, what are you, what are you going to talk about at Pepperdine? And I said, I was just going to ask him in in person. I said, well, I'll ask you, does God suffer? And he just said two words. He said, yes, Jesus. So I was like, I got to talk about that. Okay. Uh, Doesn't my whole case fall apart When I get to the New Testament, doesn't Jesus disprove divine impassibility? Okay. How does someone like me say that Jesus is fully God and yet suffers under Pontius Pilate? Well, I think one of the most helpful things that we can do here is uh, look back to the formula of some of the first ecumenical councils of church history, and that helps us wrap our brains around Jesus and, and suffering, okay? So th- those four, first four councils gave us this formula that Jesus is one divine person existing or subsisting in two natures, okay? So when we ask the question, who is Jesus? Well, of course, there's one answer. He is the second person of the Trinity. But if you ask, what is Jesus? You don't just get one answer, you get two answers. He is both divine and human. So when we ask who suffered on the cross, well, there's only one answer to that. Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, the Messiah, who is co-eternal with the father, but what suffered on the cross? Well, his human nature, not his divine nature. And this is is what kind of breaks our brain that a divine person can suffer without his divine nature suffering. And I think that there are, other examples of this, but I think this quote from John of Damascus summarizes it pretty well. The word of God itself endured all in the flesh, while his divine nature, which alone was passionless, remained void of passion. Now, if that's confusing, I think there are other examples in the life of Jesus that can can help us understand his suffering. Compare, for example, his suffering to his birth. One of the biggest controversies in early church history was what to call Mary, okay? So there was one group who called Mary the Christotokos. She's the one who bore Christ. And there was another group that called her Theotokos, the one who bore God. This whole question came to the Council of Ephesus in 431. And when you have this formula right here, it actually really helps you understand how to think of Mary and how to think of Jesus, okay? Who is Jesus? Well, it's the same answer as the last slide. The second person of the Trinity made flesh. What is Jesus? Well, he has two natures. So there's two answers to that question. He is both divine and human. So when we ask, to whom did Mary give birth? Well, there's there's one answer to that. She gave birth to the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ. What did Mary bear in her womb? Not his divine nature, his human nature. This is why the council said Theotokos is the way to go. She is truly the mother of God, but she did not give birth to or create his divine nature. Let's talk about another example. Imagine you can get in a time machine. You go back 2000 years. You are making eye contact with Jesus of Nazareth. Be pretty special. Okay. Who are you looking at? You're looking at a person. What are you seeing? Well, you're seeing flesh and blood. You're not seeing his divine nature. Imagine being there at the cross. Let's say you're like the beloved Apostle John. Who are you seeing crucified? You're seeing a person being crucified. What is being crucified? It's his his body. Imagine you're the Samaritan woman at the well. Who are you seeing get thirsty at the well? You could say she saw... The second person of the Trinity get thirsty at the well. But what did she see drink water from the well? Well, it was his mouth. Okay. This helps us with really thorny questions about creation itself. There's a lot of passages in the New Testament that seem to say Jesus Christ created the universe. John chapter one says all things came into being through Jesus. First Corinthians Eight says the one Lord Jesus Christ by whom are all things and we exist through him. Colossians one says, for by him, all things were created. Hebrews one says through uh, through him was made the world. Okay, so if we go back to this question, our, our answers always depend on what we're asking. If we're asking who created the universe this time, because who names persons, there's actually three answers. God, the father, God, the son and God, the Holy Spirit. But what created the, vine, the, the universe? We're not talking about Christ's human nature, but his divine nature. This is why some of the mysteries of the Christian faith can make sense, that Jesus is both the creator of Mary and the son of Mary, David's Lord and David's son, the creator of Adam and yet his descendant. Okay, now I realize that that's kind of a, a tangent, but I think it helps us Understand why Christ's suffering is not a defeater for divine impassibility. And I think that one of the problems we come up with is when we're doing theology, there's kind of a shorthand version of theology and a longhand version of theology. So it is absolutely true to say in a shorthand way, God was born or God suffered. As long as we don't mean or imply The divine nature was born or suffers. God as God cannot be born. God as God cannot suffer. But if God becomes man, then yes, he can be born and he can suffer. I think unfortunately, though, whenever you're talking theology, sometimes it requires clarifying what you mean. And clarifying isn't sexy, right? The longhand version is is a lot more complicated than the shorthand version Uh, up at the top of the screen. So these statements are true, but we have to clarify what we mean. And I think some of the earliest church councils actually did that really well. So at this point, whenever whenever I was going through this and preparing our, our lecture for today, I thought it might seem like I'm just kind of explaining away Difficult truths or mysterious aspects of scripture. But I think the doctrine of divine impassibility actually protects the mystery of our faith. Okay. Cyril of Alexandria once said the impassable one suffered. This was kind of his, his phrase for Jesus. The impassable one suffered. Can we put that slide up? When you start to when you start asking questions about God and suffering, um, I don't think the point of this doctrine is to explain away. It's actually to protect the, the mystery of our faith. So we believe that God in himself is impassable. That's why Cyril of Alexandria said that. And when God is working with his people, Israel, and they are writing scriptures, yes. God speaks through scripture and his emotions, so-called, are very human ways to tell us the truth about himself and and ourselves. But when God comes in the flesh, all that he does is true. He truly took flesh. He was truly conceived, truly born, truly suffered, truly died, and truly rose from the dead. And yet, in his incarnation, he never lost his divine nature. He never stopped being God. That divine person has two natures, without confusion, without change, without division, and without separation. One of my favorite hymns, And Can It Be?, has this amazing line that says, Tis mystery all that immortal dies. That protects the mystery, whereas I think divine passability actually gets rid of the mystery. and actually may make you an accidental heretic. But oh, we're not going to use that label for anyone in here or anyone outside of this room. It's just, historically speaking, these, these characters whose teachings became heresies actually chose between two difficult options, and they thought you had to choose one or the other. So Arius believed that Jesus was fully human, but not fully God. The Docetists in the 200s believed that Jesus was fully God, but only seemed to be human. The Greek word for, uh, behind this word is dokeo, which means to seem or to appear. So Jesus only seems to be human. Now, whenever we're talking about passibility or impassibility, I think we can accidentally run back into these, these heresies without really meaning to. So anybody who downplays Christ's suffering ends up kind of being a docetist in the 21st century. He's impassable, but he didn't really suffer. But if we say that Jesus is passable, if we say that he's suffering in his divine nature, I think we're kind of sliding back into Arianism in the 21st century. And what I love about the, the, this doctrine is that it maintains both of what either heresy rejects. So this doctrine says that Jesus is the impassable one of the Trinity, who suffered for us. There's actually a line in Hebrews that actually hints at this. In chapter nine, the author of Hebrews, whoever that is says, nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again, the way the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood that is not his own. Otherwise here's this crazy thought. Christ would have to suffer many times since the creation of the world. So I think it's actually even veiled in some passages in Scripture. I think at the the end of the day, this leads us uh, to talk about heaven. I actually think this is actually really, really good news. Um, If the question is that if we believe that God will wipe away every tear from our eyes, we've got to ask how? How is that possible? How did God choose to do this? And I think God is able to do that because he is perfectly joyful in himself, and yet he shed human tears. From all eternity, I believe that God is perfectly happy, totally blissful in himself. And because of our sin, we brought great misery upon ourselves. Out of his infinite love, God became one of us to end our misery. And he truly shared in our pain as fully man. And he wept human tears at the tomb of Lazarus and over the city of Jerusalem. But God was never and will never be sad in his divine nature. But for the joy set before him, Jesus wept so that he could wipe away every tear. I think this is one way of stating the whole gospel. The impassable one suffered for us. Because here's why this really matters to me. We need someone to do more than just feel our pain. We need someone to conquer all of the causes of our pain. We need someone to do more than feel our pain. Which is why I think that word solidarity, it's true. I have nothing against it. But at the end of the day, I think what Christ does is ultimately not for himself but for us and our salvation so it is true that the suffering of jesus expresses his solidarity with us but it's not just solidarity it's salvation from suffering in the new creation i think the suffering of jesus is vicarious because he bore our sin and not his own but more than that the suffering of jesus is victorious because he triumphed over sin. So it's fundamental to our faith that the suffering of Jesus was real because his humanity is real, but the suffering of Jesus is more than that. It's redemptive because his divinity is real. So this is, this is why I think it's so important to say that God is not co- codependent on us. I think that's a short version of saying one of the imp- impassable Trinity. One of the impassable trinity suffered for us in our salvation. That's that's how it's possible that God will wipe away every tear from our eyes in the end. In a debate with each other, uh, there is a debate between Nicholas Wolterstorff and J. Todd Billings. And Nicholas Wolterstorff said, only a God who suffers can comfort us. And J. Todd Billings responded, only a God who can't suffer can end suffering forever. And I was thinking about those two quotes, and I just don't think we have to choose between them. To my daughter, who will probably suffer with her skin condition for the rest of her life, I would want to say both things are true. That we can receive comfort from a God who came into this world And suffered on the cross for our behalf. But in the end, he doesn't just experience solidarity with us. He saves us. He doesn't just provide comfort. He provides consolation. And that's why I think impassibility is really good news. Um, If you want any more resources, I'm going to put some pictures of books up that I read in preparation for this. Uh, I was telling John Mark a second ago, I read this in undergrad, and I thought, case closed. This is the best, best book I've ever read on this. And like a good undergraduate student, I read one book and thought, case closed. Uh, but then I got to grad school, and I got handed this book, and I thought, oh, the case isn't closed. Um, and then in preparation for today, I, there, I read this book by Thomas Wynandy. So um, if you want the, the best case... For what I passionately disagree with, read this book because it is, it is amazing. Um, if you want to hear why this may not be the best option in the world, read this book. These are kind of grad school level books, and this, these two are undergrad uh, level. So if you ever wanted to recommend uh, a book on these topics for maybe a student in one of your classes, I think None Greater by Matthew Barrett or None Like Him by Jen Wilkin is, is great too. This book, whenever I got to talking about Christ's two natures and the person versus uh, his divine and human nature, this is what was most helpful to me. So this is not directly about Christ's suffering, but it helps uh, us with the theology of the incarnation. So uh, are there I'd love to uh, answer any questions. We have, I think, five to ten minutes left. So I'd love to have any dialogue or feedback uh, from y'all. Yes, David. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, I'm just curious how this has shaped you as a pastor, like yeah. entering into spaces of suffering. Have you felt a shift in the way you enter those spaces? Yeah. So my congregation is, on average, much older than me. So uh, uh, we've got probably 75 members at our church at UA, and the, I would say the average age is 60 plus. Okay, so I've got a lot of people who are preparing to meet the Lord. Okay, and we can have some very serious conversations where I'm sitting next to someone in a pew who is 84 and wondering, you know, what's going to happen to me? And I am unapologetic about saying, by grace, you're going to go to heaven and your suffering and pain is going to come to an end. That's good news. Um, I think there's kind of been a shying away from heaven talk because we don't want to say I'll fly away and we don't want to be escapist from the world. But I am unapologetic about saying y'all are going to go to heaven and it's going to be better than this. Um, so that's, that's how it's helped me um, as, as a pastor. Yeah. So, yes. So, Mitch, so you're my younger, you're much, much younger. Okay. So that heaven's a long way away. It is. is there a pastoral response for comfort in the right now. Yeah. With I, that theology of the Yes. So, I would say, um, I think it's sometimes a false choice between solidarity and salvation. I think some sometimes we focus on the gospel as you know maybe in older you know generations of Church of Christ folks they grew up on the the promise of heaven. Um, and I think a lot of younger folks are comforted by God experiences solidarity with us in, in the now, but I think it's, it's a false choice. We should say God can give us comfort in the midst of great, uh, uh, suffering in our lives and in the world. Um, so I, I don't think you have to, you have to choose. Um, so that, that's been my experience with, with younger folks, but Impassibility is a hard sell because it it really has a branding problem. It sounds like God is apathetic, joyless, static, out in the universe, doesn't really really care, very far away. Um, And that's what this is trying to restore, that the image of God that I want younger Christians to know is that God is infinitely joyful, infinitely loving, infinitely full of life, and can pour that out upon us right now. So, yes? I can't,
1: I can't get away from the feeling that we that might be talking about two things. It seems like we're talking about the question of, does God suffer? And we're talking about the question of, does God experience emotion or something like emotion? Yeah. Is that, and it seems to me you could affirm, say that God doesn't suffer, but God nevertheless has emotion. Is that a distinction that
0: any of these authors talk about or that any of the, the church fathers talk about? Yeah, so I think... The language of emotions is is pretty recent, just in terms of our understanding of psychology and the human person. And the way that they use passion is pretty negative. Their, their definition from the start is a passionate person is, is someone who is controlled by their emotions. They're overwhelmed uh, by their feelings. And so they're out of control. They, uh, they do what they want to do because they're, they're Full of passion. Whereas when we talk about college students, one of the most positive things you can say is they're so passionate. Um, so I was actually reading about this with one uh, reformed author named Kevin DeYoung. Um, he said he always gets this this person is in his congregation who comes up to him and says, "Does God have emotions?" And he keeps kind of qualifying it to death. Um, so I. I just think whatever the inner life of God in His divine nature is so hard for us to fathom that they are so it's so disanalogous to human emotions that I would tend to say no. I, I don't know anything like our experience of passing from joy to sadness to depression to uh, you know ecstasy. That those experiences. Ha- are at a vast distance for the divine nature. So I tend to say no, but I understand why it, it, it sounds really bad for God. <laughs> yes? It, it, it seems like part of it is that when we talk about emotions, that emotions are fundamentally a reaction to something. Yes. And that reactions, that, and that doesn't mean that they're any less real, but that our emotions are us reacting to a world outside of our control. Right. And our inner life reflects kind of that outer turmoil. And I think when we talk about the idea of God having emotions, and that's where I think impassibility comes with handy, is that God doesn't have that kind of emotional change. That doesn't negate the person and character of God. Right. But God experiences love not as a reaction to something, but because of who God fundamentally is. Yeah. God experiences joy because of who he fundamentally is, not as a reaction to outside events. And I think that's, that's what's been helpful for me in clarifying that idea when we talk about emotions, We're talking about our reaction to external stimuli. God's not dependent upon those things. That's part of the whole idea of God's not coded. Yeah. There was a slide earlier that I skipped that maybe we could go back to that's a kind of side by side comparison of a passable God and an impassable God. Uh, It's pretty early on. Um, I didn't know if we had time to do it. But just like you're saying, Impassibility is trying to say that God cannot be acted upon. He's not this passive subject to what's going on in our world, that he can't suffer loss or harm or detriment or pain. And, and this, this word is crucial, that he doesn't change from state to state. He just is over, the overflowing plenitude of joy and life and love. That, to go back to what you're saying, he is, that is his character. That is his nature. Um, whereas I think a passable God you inevitably have to say that he does change his inner emotional state and it's often a response to something outside of God um, so it's a very long answer to your good question yeah
1: I mean I've been on my own journey with this, this whole thing because I was like a Moltmon advocate and, and don't mind being a heretic at all <laughs> uh, so, so but for me I think leading with this is hard but where I where I was intrigued by it is is to me it's the bigger conversation of trying to educate an entire generation think about transcendence. Well, yeah. And there's just right we're just not Neoplatonists, we're trying to import all this Neoplatonic philosophy to modern people that don't understand Trinitarian debates or theological yeah. debates. It's all premised on Neoplatonic ideas of God's plenitude. Yeah. You know how to communicate that but I've found a good gateway drug for this like people like Catherine Tanner stuff that it's God's transcendence that sets up God's like non-competitive relationship right. with us because God is different from us means God can be as Augustine says like closer to myself
0: than I am myself. yeah
1: and then, and then once you understand that transcendence brings this God really close to you there, there is a there is a response from the creature to kind of say you're with me in your presence and that conversation about God's otherness um, as closeness, I think, then opens up a path to talk about these other aspects. But I think if you lead with the word impassable, yeah. you can get fairly triggered responses.
0: Yeah, I, I did kind of a. Just
1: very you know, triggered responses. Right.
0: <laughs> I did a, a Bible class uh, at UA just called God is Not Like Us. And I went through, I tried again to do the rebranding for these attributes, omnipotence, um, omnipresence. And I think that initially when you say, you know, God is like you in some way, there's this kind of comfort. But yeah, I th- if, you, if you go down that path too far, God is your peer, then God can't really be your Lord. God can't really be your, your Savior. Um, and so... Uh, I think there's, there's great news to his transcendence being above and beyond. Any other questions or comments?
1: I do have a question. Yeah. <laughs> How do you do the Hebrew text, right? That We, we have a high priest that's now sympathetic to us. Yeah. Does the incarnation imply change in the divine nature? Yeah. Only sympathetic in the in the resurrected body. I mean, how do you you still just work it out that
0: one? Yeah. So my understanding of the way the church fathers have responded to this is precisely because God, the Son, never stops being God. That He does not change. That in fact His His incarnation is a change for us. That for the first time ever, a human nature was united to a divine person. And so the change was on our side, not on God's side. Um, so I don't know if that, that settles the debate, but there's actually one slide on this at the very, very, very end that this is where I'm just going to put out, this, is, this might challenge everything I said because it, it makes me feel very, very confused, okay? So I was going through Thomas Wynandi's book and I said, yes, God is impassable, God is impassable. And then we got to this and I thought, oh, this really throws a wrench in everything. So I'm going to throw a wrench in my own presentation for your sake. So in case you really want to disagree, this is where I think things really get trippy. The ascension is a part of the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed. And Jesus didn't zip out of his human nature and float up into heaven. It is a fundamental part of our faith that Jesus ascended into heaven with this risen and glorified body, and if we believe he's the head of his body, the church, then how do we deal with this? That he exists as fully human and fully divine in heaven. And it seems that Jesus, when he appears to the apostle Paul says, those who, you know, Paul, you're persecuting me. You're not just persecuting Christians on earth. So does, does Christ feel any kind of suffering in heaven in his human nature? I don't know. That breaks my brain. You
1: have to confess that there are scars in heaven.
0: Right? Right? So this throws a wrench in everything I just said. So, all right. Thanks for coming, everybody.